Welcome to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success, hosted by John Biggs. Every week, we talk to an amazing person about a time they failed and what they learned. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Welcome back to Keep Going, a podcast about success and failure. Today I'm talking to David Ruddock. He's a uh, project manager at Aperture Data. Uh, you're a uh, developer. What do you What do you been doing over there? Um, I work in marketing. Though uh, mm-hmm. so that is a. Uh, it's funny when you asked me for my title. I thought, you know, yeah. should I actually uh, even <laughs> say what my title is? Because um, by the time this gets published, I, I will no longer uh, be, be okay. working at Aperture Data. And uh, no, no horror story there particularly, just not a very good fit for me. But uh, by background, uh, I am a writer and a journalist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote about Android for over 11 years. I was the editor-in-chief of a publication about Android before I made the transition into working in content marketing at a software startup uh, here in Seattle. And uh, from there, you know, bounced into another marketing job, this time in product marketing, which if you don't know anything about marketing, that's fine. It's wildly different from doing content. Still entails a lot of writing, uh, just a lot more uh, hands and other things. But my career path for the most part has been uh, been in that journalist sphere in the tech, tech journalism world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you uh, so you went from you went from journalist to content marketer to general marketer, which I think is a it's an interesting new uh, interesting and fun new uh, career path for a lot of journalists who are basically getting hit in the face by layoffs and everything right now. Absolutely, and I, I think that you see a lot of folks in journalism. I, I mean, I remember when I started, and I was just you know I, I was fresh out of not finishing law school. And uh, seeing that a lot of people would make the jump into communications, uh, for example, from journalism. And I think you still see some of that, but probably less than you used to. People now seem to get picked up more for their their very specialized skills that they can bring to a particular company or function. Okay, so why don't so you you had a uh, you had a I guess a question that you wanted to start out with. Yeah, yeah, or uh, you know, kind of a prompt. So this this shows about you know what what kind of you know failure have you experienced and how have you recovered from it? Essentially, I, am I understanding the premise correctly? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, in in the past year, I definitely uh, had a qualifying life event. Let's say mm-hmm. um, I am unfortunately a corporate jargon machine. The uh, startup software world has ruined me. Uh, it's okay. going to take me a little while to recover from that. But uh, uh, I, without getting into gruesome details, uh, I, I had a very significant life change um, about a year ago, a little over a year ago now. And uh, suffice it to say, a, a partner split. And I know that many of us have gone through things like that. And those moments can be ones of deep reflection for a lot of people, or they can also just be sort of a stepping stone, you know, in your life. And maybe you don't make, you know, some huge changes. Uh, the former was was definitely the case for me. Uh, it was a sort of a cataclysmic moment in my life. And 
one which uh, took me some time to to really try to to put together. And the key question I started asking myself in the wake of that that event was, who am I, and, and mm-hmm. what do I even care about? Like, you know, why why am I driven to get up every day and do what I do? And I found I didn't have a lot of good answers. <laughs> Um, which I I think is something that a lot of people can relate to, certainly. But my response to that was to become almost obsessively driven with trying to answer that question. Who am I? What do I care about? Why does it Mm -hmm. matter to me? And uh, the, the framework I ended up adopting for that is essentially what you know, most people would consider your identity, you know, truly on a very basic level, (laughs) you know, what makes you, you. And that's a very philosophic, you know, discussion that can become, I I think, uh, very nebulous very quickly. Um, Everybody looks at it in their own way. And some people don't even really have a conscious approach to identity. They have a, a deep confidence in who they are and not a lot of need or really desire um, to question that. On the other hand, I think there are some of us who uh, look at identity and feel um, deep discomfort with that Mm -hmm. notion. And the idea of engaging with it is quite scary in a lot of ways. And when I felt truly alone and like I was with, with nobody to be with but my own thoughts, um, that my approach to that question actually became very important to me because I, I really didn't see a path forward without answering it for myself. I, hmm. I just wouldn't have the reason to do almost anything. Um, not to say I was in a place of considering self-harm or anything like that, but I, I was definitely in a pretty depressed place. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not that's some serious stuff. And I, like, just just for just for clarity, how old how old are you at this I'm point? I'm thirty five. Thirty five. Okay, so you're so you you haven't you haven't really hit that that full so that full solid mid uh midlife area yet. But I think you're it's interesting. Yeah, I've definitely spoken to some folks who are who are older than I am who kind of identify it as a quote midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that realistically, you can approach these moments at any point in your life. Yeah, I think so. That's right. A lot of people actually approach them very early in life. And I think that's why some some people never, quote, have that, that midlife crisis is that there's some big change either in their 20s or maybe even adolescence that uh, totally flips their world upside down and uh, causes them to make major reevaluations about who they are, what they care about. and. The thing that I came away with most of all, aside from you know just gaining a lot of emotional awareness, let's say, uh, which I think is a you know pretty important thing for you know growing up, let's say, but also just for you know being a, a person who's pleasant to be around, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, was well, what does it even mean um, to to try to understand your identity or you know to use this term which i think gets some eye rolls um but what does it mean to have like a growth mindset about identity and i don't want to claim that i'm breaking any new ground here there are some great resources out there about identity there's a whole podcast um which i i've personally not listened to but i've listened to the person who hosts it 
on another show. Um, I believe her name is Maya Shankar called uh, A Change of Plans and where she talks to people who had these sort of fulcrum moments in their life where, you know, suddenly they had to question everything and uh, then move forward from that moment and choose to grow from it and also to to establish who they are and uh, what is important to them and what drives them. So uh, I came up with this this anecdote. It's very silly. John, have you, are you a Star Trek person? Uh, I don't want to admit it in mixed company, um, <laughs> but I've gotten to the point where it's like, I, and I, I never watched the early, the early stuff and I have, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, hesitation about this uh, because I've always hated Star Trek, but I watch uh, Star Trek Voyager and I basically watch the newer Star Treks when I'm run now, and I'm basically addicted to it. So yes, I'm a Star Trek person to that degree. Voyager was the one I grew up with. Uh, Voyager although... and, and Next Generation. Yes. So okay, if you're familiar, the Next Generation is always the one that's going to have the special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. So when I think about growth mindset around identity, the person, the character I pick out is data Um, and if you're not you know for for people listening you aren't familiar with data he's a synthetic life form built by a scientist meant to be a sort of a a replica of human you know anatomy and uh, capability but he has limitless strength limitless intellectual potential but he has this sort of uh you know wizard of oz-esque character flaw and that he has no emotions right uh and so Data's whole character arc is positioned around this idea that his his primary drive, his his function that he is endowed with is the pursuit of humanity, what it means to be a human. Uh, and so this is this becomes kind of shtick in the show uh, where, you know, Data, he tries, you know, uh, writing poetry or acting. Um, or doing comedy bits. He does. He does a little bit of painting. He does. Some, yeah. He does some violin. I think. Yeah. He's exactly. A, uh, he has a cat. He gets a cat. Yeah. He's got a cat. And he. And he. And he. I think he solves Sherlock Holmes mysteries by just like, literally, just like figuring it out based on uh, empirical methods or something like that. Yes. Yes. And uh, you know, he even tries like dating, which uh, you know, for uh, you know, a, a being without emotion is just like obviously like it's it becomes comedic. Well, there was really. definitely an episode where uh, where young Data found his uh, found his. Uh, found love for a moment there i I, I distinctly remember this so yes yes that uh that episode with tasha yar (laughs) and uh don't get me wrong uh those those jokes at data's expense were some of the best uh best funniest ones in star trek but when i think of data um the thing that makes him so such an embodiment when when you say he's like searching for his humanity really what you mean is he's searching for his identity um Mm -hmm the pieces and the things that, you know, he can kind of claw together that, that, you know, make him, him. And without that emotional piece though, you, the, the kind of dramatic irony is that he can never quite grasp uh, what that is. And, but the flip side is he has this superhuman ability, which is to be totally unafraid of failure uh, or the idea that something won't resonate with him. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't care. He, he, you know, literally has no emotional response to deciding that, like, uh, you know, playing violin either does or doesn't bring me some kind of meaning, um, whatever that might be. Or he will continue to pursue it in the hope that one day it could bring meaning. 
which for, you know, a real human being, like you are not going to go after a hobby for, you know, years and years and years in the hope that one day you might like it. That's, Mm -hmm. that's not really realistic. Right. But, uh, when I think about, uh, what makes him so, I think that there's a scene, um, if you've seen the films, the Star Trek Next Generation movies, uh, I think it's an insurrection, uh, the Borg one. And so Data gets an emotion chip. It allows him to feel things. And there's this scene, and I bet you know, as as I'm going into this, which scene it is, where he's at the bar with one of his friends. And the bartender, who is Whoopi Goldberg, which if you've never watched Star Trek, yeah, Whoopi was in TNG. Uh, she's a, she comes up with these drinks and she's like, oh, this is such and such, you know, beverage. Uh, do you want to try it to Data and his friend? And Data goes to grab the drink and he, you know, just shoots it. And he makes this face that is like a 14 year old, like taking a shot of <laughs> vodka and uh, just like grimacing and his neck twists. And uh, he just says, like, curious, you know, I don't I don't understand this sensation, because although he can feel things, he doesn't have the ability to really articulate uh, Mm -hmm. what he's feeling. And so uh, he goes to drink it again. And uh, he he makes this like noise, this kind of like, like noise of disgust, essentially. And, uh, you know, his friend is like, well, what are you feeling? Can you can you describe what you're feeling? And he's like, no, it's uh, it's something I've never experienced before. And the bartender, Whoopi, looks over and says, well, it looks like he hates it. And Data goes, (laughs) I hate this. And Mm, he gets this mile wide grin on his face and goes, it's revolting. (laughs) And then Whoopi goes, another? And he's like, yes, please. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, that to me, that moment is the embodiment of what, you know, I think that for, you know, a lot of people, we would like the experience of searching for identity to be like, Um, Mm -hmm. not just that we get to know ourselves and the things that bring us joy, but in getting a satisfaction um, out of, you know, exploring new things and even things we hate, uh, you know, just having that sense of uh, childlike awe um, of like, wow, that's bad and it's new and the novelty of the thing in itself is, is really interesting. So, of course, Data is, you know, this this character in a television show does not in any way represent like true human psychology. Well, it's just a bunch, if, of, a bunch of stories. I don't want to I don't want to go off on I don't want to go off on a tangent. But I think I think if we look at Data and I've been thinking about this a lot and this is like this is my little pet theory. This th- that that Data was designed for the audience in um, the Star Trek audience who might be potentially on the spectrum, who might be potentially uh, emotionally disconnected. Um, and there are a couple of those characters, obviously you have like, uh, you have the, the, what's her name? Seven of nine as well. Right. Where you basically have somebody who's so disconnected from themselves or so disconnected from their emotions that they don't know how to interact with people. And it's like, it's almost like a training, training manual, uh, <laughs> for folks with, for nerds. I mean, if I'm being honest, like yeah. some, some of the stuff that you get out of Star Trek is super helpful. If you don't, if you don't know how to talk to girls, basically. And, uh, and I mean, Star Trek wasn't, wasn't made for, uh, made for a wider audience. It was made for, uh, I think, uh, teenage boys who really like to watch spaceships fly around. 
Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I think that, you know, Spock, another example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, definitely seven of nine. Although, you know, that was when Star Trek really started to, to sell like female body image as a reason for boys to tune in, which mm. was yeah, it's uh, probably one of the darker spots on the, on the series, unfortunately. But um, I love data as just, you know, a little, a snapshot um, of this idea that there is a, a profound joy that can be taken from learning about yourself. And I think to me, that is one of the, maybe even if it was not the explicit intent of the creators of the show, it was something that I, as a child, uh, mm-hmm. definitely resonated with me. This idea that, you know, you just go out there and try things and uh, you, you learn about yourself in this way. And I really started, um, I wouldn't say from square one, uh, with this question, you know, uh, about a year ago, but I, I became like this, this voracious consumer, um, you know, of, of books, of podcasts, um, of all this various stuff, um, in a search, you know, for, for myself, which I, I later kind of found out like, wow, I'd, I'd really been pushing down. Um, who I was in a mm-hmm. huge way for for a very long time. Um, in in what way is it? Was it avoidance? Was it you were just ignorant of the fact that that you could hate or that you could love or you could feel these things? It, it wasn't so much an ignorance. It was a uh, a desire to I think which many of us have, and I, I think we see it in a lot of people. It's this. Uh, we see ourselves and our lives in these these kind of boxes we construct, right? So, you know, when I went to uh, law school, for example, um, I became very, you know, of this mindset of like, I am going to be a lawyer. That means I have to decide, you know, like within the, the lawyerly sphere of profession, what is the thing, the kind of law that I will do and um, to accept that this is a very difficult tedious, um, often humiliating job uh, where, you know, you will be belittled, you have to work your way up the rungs, and uh, that the, you know, big hours that you'll have to put in, that's all just part and parcel, and you have to accept that. That's that's kind of who you've chosen to be. Uh, when I reached the end of my second year of my legal education, I I broke and mm-hmm. realized there's no way I cannot be this person. Like I was a, it was a fundamental discovery about myself, just knowing, like trying to envision myself in that place, you know, looking like, what would it be like for me to be a lawyer and realizing there is no way I can envision this for myself. It's, mm-hmm. I can't make it real. And I think that for some people, um, the desire for proficiency is a huge part of their identity. And so they're able to push through moments like that. Um, you know, they either desire for proficiency or for the perception of proficiency, whichever it may be. Um, like I'm going to do this because I've told people, or there's this story I've constructed about my ability to do this. And that's, what's going to drive me regardless of whether or not I actually like doing it. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, what I've told myself I'm going to do. Um, for better or worse, and you know, uh, I, I have always struggled with <laughs> with making that kind of uh, story for myself. Um, if I don't enjoy doing something on some level, I very quickly lose my ability to stick with mm-hmm. it. 
Um, I think so. This is, and maybe this is like more self-helpy than need in, in, a, in, a, in a 20 minute podcast. If you listen a couple episodes back, uh, I was talking with a buddy and we talked about the idea of the generalist. Uh, and I think a lot of journalists actually fall into that space because yes. I remember distinctly uh, when I, my motto when I first became a journalist was that I want to write about 500 things a year instead of do one thing for five years. Right. So I would much rather, I don't want to, I don't want to code a point of sale system and then do the documentation and everything, unless it's like super specific to my, to my personal like interests at that point. Uh, I would much rather learn about 500 weird things uh, instead of sitting there, as you would say, some like being a lawyer and just like digging into documents for five months because you have to protect somebody from who, I don't know, who poured. Uh, toxic waste into a pond somewhere so it's kind of difficult yeah and and absolutely that's i think part of why journalism was sticky for me for for a relatively long time is that there was that ability to sort of uh reorient on a pretty regular basis and say well that's not interesting to me anymore um, i'm going to focus on this topic now and, and eventually even that you know starts to starts to wear depending on you know the uh the niche of journalism you're inside and you know how much flexibility there is for a given publication you can't uh go write for you know um a blog that's focused on consumer technology and decide you want to get into like you know neuropsychology <laughs> it's it's mm -hmm. not gonna it's not gonna work nobody's gonna read and everybody's gonna get very upset <laughs> and uh you know even that can start to feel like a box but i think for me what it took a long time to discover, and that was when I when I quit law school, that was 13 years ago, uh, or 12 years ago, something like that. I still didn't give myself the permission to say, wait, am I just going about, you know, my my kind of approach to this in terms of, you know, how I think of myself, what interests me in the wrong way? I just sort of assumed, okay, I had this journalism thing going on the side. That's more interesting. That's the only mm -hmm. thing, the only feeling I really followed was, well, I like this more. It sounds better. And so I'm going to pursue that. And I did for a long time. And I, I'm pretty proud of, you know, where I went with that career and the the team I helped to build and the mm -hmm. people who I saw, you know, really up-level their careers. And what I saw with that, though, was that there were people I brought on and who, you know, I took their writing from, you know, a fairly, you know, undisciplined place and got them to approach stories and ideas, you know, more consistently with, you know, more rigor, frankly. And, yeah, well, uh, obviously, it, it, it when, when you were, I mean, when we were coming up, I guess you could say something like Android Police was was fairly unique and fairly difficult to do because there, there there was no precedent for writing intelligently about little objects that you kept in your pocket that could connect to the internet. That was well, kind of wild. Right. And, you know, the very idea that you would apply um, kind of a, a news reporter's mindset mm -hmm. um, to reporting on that subject matter, which, you know, I didn't come from that background. I, I flew by the seat of my pants for most of that job. Um, but what I saw with those people who I'm still immensely proud of um, I would see them develop this real energy around what they did and the, the beats they covered um, to the point where that would propel them to the next stage. And I, and I always looked at that publication as a stepping stone in a lot of ways because 
I knew it would never have the true mass appeal of a more general publication and that it just didn't have, you know, for lack of a better word, um, the pedigree uh, to Mm. ever stand out as a, quote, tier one publication. And I, I don't mean that to belittle anybody, just that that's kind of how media orchestrates itself, right? <laughs> you know, you have the uh, you have the upper echelon, um, you know, those publications that do have a certain self seriousness that is often <laughs> earned. I would say, uh, you know, sometimes people don't like the attitude, but uh, I do think that generally it's an earned thing. Versus those that are a little more uh, maybe yeah, haphazard's not the right word scrap scrappy and ragtag let's say yes. I, I don't want to get i don't want to get too far down into the weeds of journalism we could do, right. we could do an entire podcast series about uh, but i would see these people stuff. anyway so um you know for example go on uh to tier 1 publications i had mm-hmm. you know at least i think I think two writers maybe just one but i did have one who went on to you know get bylined in the new york times and that to me was just like whoa what how did you how did you make the flip there like what what pushed you and i never interrogated that feeling very closely for myself i just thought you know i'm comfortable where i'm at i you know seem to be at least competent at what i do and i always felt like you know whatever drive that is that they have whatever's pushing them i just don't have that that's not in me and uh, that was really a, <laughs> something that I should have probably, or somebody in my life should have flagged <laughs> mm-hmm. earlier on. But, you know, I didn't have the benefit of that mentorship or really, frankly, anyone in my life who would have really pushed me that way. And so I, I became relatively stagnant in that job. And it was only through a moment of, I would say, uh, serendipity, but that makes it sound more pleasant than it was. Um, that I took a job in marketing. Um, the publication was being acquired at that point. I had no taste for the company that was acquiring it. I could see it mm-hmm. was about to become very numbers driven and very ruthless. And uh, I did not want to work for such an organization because that held zero interest for me. I was always very good at identifying when I knew something was just not going to work for me. I could mm-hmm. zero in on that. And once I made that decision, I could not unmake it. <laughs> and so I took the, this job in marketing and uh, that was around around two years ago. And about a year after that, a little under a year, I had this this moment. And what I realized in that moment was that, wow, um, I spent all that time and that journalistic career just never really asking, like, but where do you want to go? You know, what's what's next for you? What is going to propel you forward? And part of that was, you know, just a definitely a lot of, you know, I would say, frankly, little T childhood trauma um, mm-hmm. that made me feel very uh, like I didn't have permission uh, to really explore that part of myself, like that there was something shameful about that and, and not knowing yourself very closely. And one of the books I started with that really uh, blew, I, I think, the, the lid off of that, for, for lack of a better phrase, um, was How to Do the Work, which is a, a fairly well-known book in the, the neuropsychology self-help sphere um, by this uh, psychologist, Dr. Nicole LaPera, and it breaks down the, the narrative of self um, mm-hmm. that many of us have. 
And, you know, I, I've never known how true this is, this idea that some people do not have internal monologue. Um, I've been told it's true. I still, frankly, find it very difficult to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I don't have the perspective, obviously. And the more I read about this idea, which, you know, you can call that like ego, um, effectively. That's one, one way that this is discussed. And what that story does to you and how it shapes you, um, you can start to tear apart like, okay, where, where does this belief come from and where did it stem from? And a lot of that came from my own childhood. Like it was just a lot of these stories that in the, the environment I was brought up in, the nature of the life experience of my parents, um, people who looked at the world as a place that would hurt you, um, that would always be fighting you. And that would always take the opportunity um, to take something away from you. Mm -hmm. uh, when you live your life in that framing and you develop your, your personal story around that, you develop this, this A, deep defensiveness. Uh, the moment you perceive <laughs> that somebody is trying to invalidate you or otherwise uh, take something away. Um, and B, it also just, I, I personally think, makes you really prone um, to depressive episodes mm -hmm. uh, because you just get down on yourself a lot. Uh, the idea being that, well, everybody is fighting the world. It just feels a lot harder for you because you don't have the basically the guts to go get after it. And uh, when I started to tear that apart, I uh, you know definitely had a lot of a lot of, you know, I mean, I, I have not really discussed this moment in my life publicly with anyone. Um, it was a very difficult time. Uh, mm -hmm. You start to fundamentally question, like, well, why was I doing what I did? And why did I choose to, to act the way I did, um, to treat people the way I did at times? And not to say I was like an abusive person or that I was, you know, out and out awful to anybody, but that, you know, I had just none of the introspection necessary mm -hmm. to evaluate my own behavior. And uh, that was, you know, the moment I, I started to say, okay, when I think of the framework of, of failure, uh, I had failed to understand who I was. And basically, what, what am I doing? You know, why am I here? What can push me forward? And the, to me, probably looking back now, it feels like truly a year ago feels like an eon. It feels bigger than the last 10 years mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. The thing that was so terrifying is that I wasn't starting from a place of asking that question. I was starting from a place of feeling tremendously lost <laughs> and just like the only thing that kept, you know, I think a semblance of structure in my life was my job. Uh, and that was, uh, frankly, not fulfilling in any meaningful way. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I did not like that job very much. I liked some of the people I worked with immensely. But uh, the actual nature of the work was not fulfilling. There was no rewarding aspect to it. No real success to share in, to speak of. And uh, so looking to that for, you know, any kind of uplifting effect was, was total folly. And um, 
so what I really started to to dive back into was okay, you know, how do I how do I think about you know my emotional health, my psychological health, and also physical health. Um, mm-hmm. And I started taking those things apart piece by piece. And that that book, How to Do the Work, was one of the first ones that that started me there. But even then, that feels not I won't say elementary, but it was just a this kind of starting point. Um, and there was uh, this time when I started to, you know, after I think really years of being depressed, probably since before the pandemic started, I I was probably in a pretty persistent depressive state and and didn't really understand that about myself. Um, I had lost touch with almost all of the things that brought me joy or meaning. Mm -hmm. And I had developed this attitude of, you know, all this, these artistic things, music, film, um, history, um, you know, psychology as a subject, um, health as a subject, all of them sort of, I, I reframed as having this immature or otherwise undeveloped kind of understanding where I thought, no, 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 no. These are, these are the things that I felt mattered to me when I was young. But when I became a professional, I assumed much of that as my identity. And also that many of us do, I, I assumed the identity of my my partners um, mm-hmm. as being far more important than, you know, any kind of identity I could establish for myself. And I, I became disinterested or just convinced myself that like I didn't want to think about these things. Um, that previously, like if I think back to college, um, or even law school uh, that were immensely important to me, that brought me a lot of satisfaction and uh, I would say spiritual meaning that I did not feel I had to share with somebody else. That was just for me. And I started to re-explore that. And, and that was when I started to actually feel, okay, I'm I'm picking up the pieces again here. and. This gets to what I think is one of the, to me, one of the most beautiful framings um, that I've ever read about what identity is and how these huge, these moments, these moments that feel cataclysmic in our lives, Mm -hmm. that feel deeply destructive, um, reshape us. And I'll read this out loud. It's not super long, but um, this is by uh, Nick Cave who is a musician, but also sort mm-hmm. of a multi, you know, multi-format artist and author. Um, and it begins, you are born, you build yourself piece by piece, you construct a narrative, you become an individual surrounding yourself with all that you love. You are wounded too sometimes and left scarred, yet you become a heroic and unique embodiment of both the things you cherish and the things that cause you pain. As you grow into this living idea, you become instantly recognizable among the billions of faces in the world. You become that which you think you are. You stand before the world and say, I am here, and this is who I am. But there is an influence at work, a veiled and magnetic force, an unnamed yearning drawing you toward a seismic event. It has always been there, patiently waiting. This event holds within it a sudden and terrifying truth. You were never the thing that you thought you were. You were an illusion as the event shatters you into a multitude of pieces. 
the pieces of you spin apart, a million little histories propelling themselves away at a tremendous rate. They become like the hurtling stars, points of retreating light, separated only by your roaring need and the distant sky itself. You scramble for the pieces of your shattered history. There is a frantic gathering up. You seize the unknowable fragments and begin putting yourself back together again. You reassemble yourself into something that seems absolutely foreign to you, yet fully and instantly recognizable. You stand anew, remade. You have rebuilt yourself, but you are different. You have become a we, and we are each other, a vast community of astonishing potential that holds the sky aloft with our suffering, that keeps the stars in place with our limitless joy, that situates the moon within the reaches of our gratitude and positions us in the locus of the divine. Together, we are reborn. This is something that I have returned to over and over and over and over <laughs> in the past year. And it probably means far more to me um, as a consumer and you know, deep admirer of this person. But the idea that identity is not just essentially um, you know, adding clay to the sculpture, mm -hmm. it is a process that is inherently destructive. Uh, that we will have these moments that really tear us apart and make us feel lost. Um, that I think in, in many ways you could describe as uh, parallel um, to how a lot of people talk about experiences with uh, certain hallucinogens and this concept <laughs> of ego death. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that you lose yourself and that that is a terrifying experience, which I've personally never done. Um, I have concerns about my uh, my own anxiety and ability to tolerate such an experience but when i began to to read about those things and those experiences i saw a, a deep connection um with that experience and my own is the way it was was described in those passages mm -hmm. and that gave me um a huge degree of confidence that what i was doing was inherently a positive and constructive act even if it began at this, this deeply destructive place. And that's not to say everybody gets out of that place. Um, I, I think that there is the potential to get lost and, and to feel you know, dejected. And, uh, and I think some people deservedly so. You know, not, life is not fair. Um, some people get handed situations that are very difficult and uh, very traumatic to break out of, and they, they may never succeed. Um, at least on their own. And uh, I am just very thankful every day that uh, I gained some level of awareness around that and was able to then start saying, okay, what can I learn about myself that is going to start, start adding to that again? How do I pick up all the little pieces and figure out who the hell I am and, and what I care about? Um, and in that time, you know, there have been a lot of things that I've, I've picked back up. Um, playing the guitar, which I'm absolutely awful at um, after 17 years of being awful at it. But <laughs> nonetheless, I find that it takes me to a place of deep, I would say, uh, it's a transcendental kind of feeling where mm -hmm. I am in the moment and the touching the instrument um, and singing the songs uh, takes me to a place that is unlike 
anything else in my life. Um, I'm, I practice meditation and that's also, you know, a, say a similar experience, but not one that gives me that level of freedom. And, you know, the guitar was something that I was often very scared uh, to uh, even mention that was a, uh, an interest to me because I felt no permission to, to really uh, explore that in a way that, you know, was not very proficient, um, did not really have to make sense to anybody else and was really just for me. And so and it's just one example, but mm-hmm. now that I've, you know, gained that awareness of like, okay, you know, I, I have permission to go out there and do the things that either bring me satisfaction or to try new things, um, you know, just because I feel like they could, that is completely flipped how, how I approach a lot of things. And, uh, you know, that's frankly one of the reasons um, I am, you know, quitting my current job is mm-hmm. that uh, I've realized it's completely antithetical to, to who I am and what drives me. Uh, it, it brings me no joy. It, it sparks nothing inside of me. If anything, it brings me a great deal of suffering, frankly, okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not to get too dramatic, but yeah, uh, well, if you're, uh, if your boss is currently listening to this, you've, it sounds, sounds like they built a really, uh, shitty environment. It's not even that I, I would never, I, I don't put it on human beings. It's just a, uh, I, I had put myself in this box of, well, I'm in this industry and I should keep pushing because I am in it. And I could eventually find satisfaction when I was fighting what was on a deep level, something that I didn't want to admit. This is Mm. not you. Uh, (laughs) And I think a lot of us get stuck in places like that. And we, we basically tell ourselves, we, we just keep kicking the can down the road. Um, of like, okay, well maybe I'll like it over time. Eventually I will get there. And we can always justify that, right? We can say, well, you know, I like the income. Um, there's some professional development or I like my teammates mm-hmm. or there are, there are just these host of reasons. Like I don't want to upset the stability that I have achieved in my life. And the experience I've had in the last year has made me, I would say, pretty cutthroat in the way I approach things like that. If it does not in some way path me to a place where I know that I'm going to achieve satisfaction or derive some kind of meaningful experience. It doesn't really have a place in my life anymore. Mm. Uh, And that doesn't mean that I need to go out there and have some deeply spiritually fulfilling job, right? It, It just means that I need something that at very least I wake up and it's intellectually satisfying. Um, that it, you know, provokes some kind of curiosity inside of me. And, uh, you know, I'm in the stages of exploring of what's that, what, you know, that would mean for the next step in my career. And that's led me to industries that previously I would have never given myself the permission or credit uh, mm-hmm. to say like, oh, you could get into that. That's not, you know, unapproachable. And it is because, again, I have developed that framework around identity where I'm now giving myself permission to go, okay, well, you don't know. You can't know for sure if this is going to be a good or a bad kind of decision tree to take at the end of the day. You, you can't know that. But 
the fact that you're giving yourself the permission to go try and get out there, that fundamentally changed the way I approach questions like this. And it made me take a much more encouraging, I think, uh, attitude with myself and to say like, yeah, why not? Um, go message that person you haven't talked to in eight years who probably barely remembers your goddamn name. But, you know, <laughs> just get out there and, and let them know. Like, hey, I am interested in your perspective on this and what you do and why it does or doesn't bring you satisfaction. And uh, I know that this is uh, hard to wrap up in a single like kind of kind of theorem, but I, I'm guessing we've both known people in our lives who who stick with something because of the certainty, consistency, and reliability of that thing, whether that's a profession, a relationship, um, or just a way of thinking. And uh, I think that, you know, maybe maybe all of us would benefit from having those moments of uh, not necessarily of deep agony and despair. I'm not recommending going out there and essentially <laughs> wrecking your life, uh, but in developing a more questioning philosophy about it and asking yourself, like, am I am I telling myself a story here um, that, you know, soothes my my internal narrative? but that is, you know, potentially very untrue to who I am. And and that's where I found myself on multiple fronts. And uh yeah. So, so, <laughs> it's quite it's quite a bit uh quite a lot. It's like the uh it's like the old uh it's like the moth joke where the moth goes into the podiatrist. Um yeah, absolutely. So this has been a this has been a full year's journey for you, which is just fascinating and it sounds like it's it sounds like it's still going on. Absolutely. <laughs> Every day, um, you know, I wake up and find like, you know, I, I really do just kind of wake up and ask like, what is going to keep me fascinated today? And, and lately for the past two months or so, that's been just taking a very hard look at physical health mm -hmm. and uh, being very uncompromising in certain ways. <laughs> um, because I think that's another, you know, area where especially I would say for Cisgender men, especially in the United States, health is a very scary thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, not a lot of us, you know, necessarily want to talk about what's your blood pressure like, um, and uh, you know, what's what's your LDL cholesterol, and also explore what that means. Um, th those concepts terrified me for a long time because I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to like what I find out, <laughs> and it made it feel very unapproachable. Um, whereas now I, I actually take quite a bit of, of joy in having that awareness and uh, taking the teeth out of it, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and I've actually found that it's a deeply fascinating subject for me, um, not least of which because it can, you know, very egocentrically apply, <laughs> you know, when you when you start to understand, you know, certain things about health markers and you know, I've been reading about like longevity and stuff like that and, you know, outcomes and the the four horsemen of death, you know, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, heart disease and uh, metabolic disease and starting to understand a little bit about that world. I am not a doctor and I'm not going to get into medical stuff, but uh, yeah, I've just found I'm so much more more open to exploring that stuff and month to month it changes you know i've uh i've developed a really rekindled like my fascination with film 
recently, which was something that for a long time um, I did not feel. I mean, when you're depressed, it's very it's very hard to uh, to get a lot of joy out of things like that, other than in the uh, comforting sense. You know, this uh, I think that it's very pop culture knowledge at this point that if you find yourself watching the same television show for the sixth time in a year you might want to talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, the idea of putting yourself in some in front of something new and different uh, doesn't really appeal when you're in that state. You know, you, you want the things that bring you comfort. And I found, for example, like, uh, I don't know if you know uh, the director Wong Kar Wai. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I went through his entire film catalog and was just astonished at like the way he portrays human relationships and you know the the dreamlike way that he has of you know capturing you know things on film and also somebody's been to Hong Kong the way he captures that place and embodies the claustrophobia and a uh, very uh, very frenetic energy of that place and you know just being in a place with myself of being able to enjoy that uh, mm-hmm. Which I definitely wasn't a year ago. I couldn't couldn't even countenance it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's close this up before we end up uh, before I end up charging you for a uh, for <laughs> for a session. <laughs> uh, David, thank you for joining us. This is a, this is going to be an interesting uh, interesting podcast because I think you really hit on a lot of uh, a lot of important points that a lot of people are essentially falling into as we as we speak. I think I think that's accurate to say. I think the world is in a in a weird place for a lot of people right now, and uh, it is hear, hear somebody else doing dealing with the same stuff that they're dealing with is going to be vital. I think. Yeah, and I I think that's you know something that I would I would love to be able to share with people, and it's the this is again I I understand how scatterbrained some of this was. It's the first time I've ever really spoken about mm-hmm. any of this in an outward way. So appreciate you, uh, you giving me the, the free therapy hour. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, you know, if there's, there's any other kind of, uh, I don't know, follow up or something, if anybody has a question or, you know, just wants to, to bounce an idea, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm available. Uh, mm-hmm. I love talking to people. That's honestly one of my favorite things. So, um, you know, if there are folks out there who want to talk or feel like they need some validation, um, that was a huge thing for me was just getting voices to say like, Hey, you're not wrong for feeling this way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's very, not just normal, but it, it's probably a, a good sign that you're starting to question some of these things. So yeah, thank you for having me. All right. This has been keep going a podcast about success and failure. I'm John Biggs. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Keep Going. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Keep going.